Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up? Shalom! And welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, as always, my friend, my mentor, my teacher... Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Shalom, Caleb. How's it going? It is going well. So uh, grateful for a beautiful spring. We've made it through the winter and we're anticipating a wonderful spring feast season here. Yeah, I'm getting pumped for uh, Passover. It is uh, coming upon us quickly and I am excited. Yeah. All right. Well, for, if you have not been joining us for the past few weeks, then uh, I highly suggest you go into the archive podcast and uh, take a listen. We've been talking about one law theology. We're going to continue that conversation today. And you know what? I looked at all the material that we're going to try to cover today. You know, this might actually bleed over into another uh, show after this, and that's okay. The nice part about running our own uh, our own radio program is that we get to choose what we want to talk about. You can be part of that conversation with us, help us choose what we talk about. You can do that by sending us an email, radio at TorahResource.com. That's radio at TorahResource.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Caleb Hag. There's two G's in Hag, and Rob Vanhoff is at Rob Vanhoff. Easy enough, two F's in Vanhoff. So, yes, um, last week, actually, first, before we before we get into last week, um, I should say that if you want to listen to the previous podcast, you should do it before the 1st of April. Uh, we're going to be implementing a uh, on-demand feature, which basically we, are, we already have, but uh, you're going to have to subscribe to it. It's a yearly subscription. It's going to cost $60 a year. There are ways around that. If you want to get a free subscription, you can let me know. And uh, we'll bring you on air. We'll have you test the mighty Rob Van Hoff in some Bible trivia or something of the like. And uh, for for coming on air with us, you will be able to receive a free yearly one-year subscription to our archived podcasts. So if you uh, don't want to sign up for that and you don't want to come on the air, never fear. You can still listen to our uh, the past week totally free. So you can listen direct online, online like you're doing hopefully right now, or you can go into the archive podcast and the week that you're in, you can listen to any of those podcasts on demand. So all is not lost. All right. Let's talk about last week. Last week we uh, played some video or some audio clips rather from uh, the show The Line of Fire with Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Michael Brown is one of our friends. He's come on this show before, and uh, I truly appreciate some of the scholarship and work that he's done. He has his doctorate in uh, Near Eastern languages and literature, so he is quite the authority when it comes to Hebrew. However, we disagree with him strongly on One Law Theology, and we talked about that a little bit last week. We played different clips from a uh, caller that called him uh, on his show her name was Renee, and she asked him about One Law Theology. I don't know if she knew that she was asking him about One Law Theology, but he responded. Now, last week, we played eight different clips. We responded to each one of those clips. 
I have yet to hear from Dr. Brown. I hope that means that he's not, you know, hopefully he's not mad at us. I, I don't think he would be. Dr. Brown uh, is a pretty good sport about things and debates a lot of different people. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, he was even willing to talk to us about this. And maybe at some point we'll be able to do that. But for now, we need to listen to these last two clips that we saved until this week. So, Rob, are you ready for that? I am ready. <laughs> Okay, so we have ready as I'll be. That's right. Two clips left. We're talking about one law theology. If you don't know what one law theology is, you can go back listen to our first show. That was two weeks ago, and I'll basically I'll sum this up really quick. We believe that the Torah, we meaning Rob Van Hoff and myself, hold to what is called one law theology. We believe that the Torah is in act today for Jew and Gentile alike. And if you're just joining us and heard that and uh, didn't know that we believe that, uh, well, (laughs) there you go. So we're going to listen right now to Dr. Brown. This is his ninth comment in this string that I I chopped up. Uh, So let's take a listen. So the distinction with there's a lot of people teaching the one law principle now. So that's just, that's just. I guess a doctrinal statement that some are making versus others. And yeah, and, and I would say it's it's absolutely unscriptural, and I would say it's one that leads people into a lot of bondage and confusion. And and I've actually watched people who are Gentile Christians who love Jesus come into this to the point that they're utterly confused about who he is. Some have even now denied the faith and converted to Judaism. So Yeshua Jesus must be central in all, and I would strongly disagree with the one law principle. Okay, let's stop right there. There, was, I, a, there was a lot to unpack there. Go for it, Rob. Well, uh, right off the bat, uh, Dr. Brown is, seems to, at least my hearing of his, his reply to the caller, is that one law is like the gateway drug to denial of Yeshua. Yeah. And I... Well, that look, is absolutely opposite of my experience. Now, yeah, of course, it, I, I haven't interviewed every single... Uh, person, but uh, in my experience, the one Torah uh, theology uh, encourages Jews to be more observant. Uh, it never is, is there any um, reduction uh, or uh, marginalization of the person of Yeshua. Well, well, well let's, yeah, uh, let, let, first he said, he, at, towards the end, he said, you know, Yeshua should be, Yeshua, Jesus should be central. Well, we agree with that totally. Absolutely. Uh, the Torah is a, you know, is part of all that. It's not, you know, we completely agree that Yeshua needs to be 100% central within our theology and built upon that. When it comes to people, now, I agree with Dr. Brown. I've seen uh, people, Jew and Gentile alike, come into messian- quote-unquote Messianic Judaism, and they have uh, gone over the cliff on the other side and have, uh, you know, converted to uh, Judaism or have denied the Messiah. Um, to to uh, claim, but I don't th- think that's a function of one Torah. Uh, perspective or promise theology. I, I, I don't see... I absolutely agree with you. In fact, I would say if uh, a person is weak enough in their faith to leave their faith, you know, I um, unlike Dr. Brown, I am a Calvinist. I believe you are as well, Rob. Uh, we've talked about that in previous shows. Uh, Dr. Brown is not a Calvinist. I don't know if Dr. Brown believes that you can lose your salvation or not. Some, uh, some people who hold to a Wesleyan 
of you do believe that. And, but I don't believe that. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. So if a person is weak enough, uh, you know, in their faith or doesn't actually have true faith in the Messiah, then sure, they're going to come, they're going to come into whatever it might be. It, it, it's not just one law. Something will take them away from. Right. Well, the faith. And, you know, in my experience, I, I've known a handful of people that uh, of Gentile origin who were part of Messianic communities who ultimately uh, converted to Judaism uh, had nothing to do with the theologies they were learning, uh, no matter what it was, in the Messianic uh, world, synagogue world. It was their increased uh, enamoration with the rabbis and the authority of mm. rabbi, uh, mm-hmm. rabbinic literature and the place of the rabbi in Jewish communities today. Uh, that uh, and the anti-missionary efforts, such as you know Tovia Singer, etc., uh, that ha- that have really produced uh, you know those types of denial situations. In my limited experience, well, um, nothing to do with uh, one Torah theology. Well, and you know it could go anyway. If a person's not rooted in in faith in the Messiah, then you know, should they not go to the mall because, you know, the, the, the mall has thing, you know, non-believers around them, they'll be influenced a different way. No, the point is, is that if you're, you're not strong in your faith, uh, it doesn't matter what tool is used to pull you away from, you know, faith in general, you're going to be pulled away. It, it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, one law theology. The other point that Dr. Brown makes is that it's absolutely not biblical, this one law theology. Um, well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, hopefully in this show, maybe next show, but we're going to talk about that because I would say that, uh, quite the contrary to that, I think that not only is it biblical, but I would say that a belief that the Torah has been done away with, or a belief that the Torah is only for Jews, not for Gentiles, that's unbiblical. And uh, we're going to look right. at we're going to look at some of those. Could I could I add one more comment on Absolutely. this before we move to the next clip? Yeah. Uh, Doctor Brown mentioned the confusion that he has seen uh, arise, and you know what? Uh, before I even was aware of messianic things, you know, I came out of, of a very conservative uh, Christian tradition. Uh, I got confused because I started reading just what other Christian denominations were doing, and I was reading the scriptures. I went through a big phase of confusion. That had nothing to do with uh, the place of the Torah. Oh, that's right. Uh, you know, it just yeah. had to do with the, the the fact of our situation historically. You know, we've just got so many different uh, people. You know, that per- my kind of journey paralleled the rise of the internet in the you know mid '90s when I was all of a sudden you know we have access to all these different kinds of teachings out there right at our fingertips. And boy, you know, it, it didn't take a one Torah theology for me to get confused well, uh, from the Christian it, church. It's interesting that you bring that up because I saw someone in the store the other day that I knew from when I was a wee little, a wee little one. And, uh, this gentleman and his wife, I saw them and, and said, Oh, Hey, you know, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And we got to talking and, and sure enough, uh, he was a part of a non-denominational Christian church that I went to when I was growing up. And now he has moved on to another denomination. He believes in uh, pedo baptism. He, uh, you know, all these kinds of doctrinal things that in the church that I knew and that I grew up and that I knew him in, uh, he, that was not accepted at all. And so it sh- it shows the shift in, even within Christianity. You know, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, all these different things. There's going to be confusion no matter what. Yeah, and, you know, just to be fair to Dr. Brown, and I think we made this point last week, he's shooting from the hip here. You know, he's, I don't know what they're 
caller screening processes or anything. But you but, know, um, but you know, but you know what, Rob? The thing about that is, is I thought about that uh, throughout this last week. Uh, I thought about the fact that Dr. Brown, you know, maybe he was cut off, caught off guard. And I'll give him that. But at the same time, uh, one thing that we need to remember about Dr. Brown is that he does uh, engage in a lot of these debates. He's uh, taken on Orthodox Jews in public debates and whatnot. So he's used to thinking on his toes. Uh, the idea that just because he was shooting from the hip means that, uh, you know, he's he he was just completely off. Uh, in what he believe, you know, it's not like he's spouting off things that he doesn't believe. Uh, you know, maybe he should have worded things a little bit differently. But I think at the root of all this, there is, in fact, the idea of his, you know, this is his theology and this is what he believes. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree. We do need to give him a little bit of credit. Okay. Are you ready for this next one? Yes, sir. Alrighty. Uh, I got to find this clip. Here we go. Here is Dr. Brown's last clip in the uh, in this in this whole little uh, montage of audio. Here we go. Even a group like First Fruits for Zion, which strongly advocates Jews living by Jewish believers living by Torah in in light of the new covenant, they used to teach this and have since separated from it. Yes, they have. And honestly, that is um, in my in my opinion, that's a travesty. What do you, what are your thoughts on that, Rob? Well, yeah, uh, it's first fruits of Zion, I think, rather than first fruits for Zion. You're, that's but, correct. But in any case, uh, yeah, and, and it's true that that organization did uh, change directions a couple years ago. That's and, right. Now they're saying that the Torah is, is for Jews, and that um, if if you're a Gentile, you're invited. They've come up. With, they've coined this phrase, "divine invitation." You're divine. You're divinely invited to keep the Torah, but you don't have to keep the Torah. Is that how you see it, Rob? Yeah, that's my understanding. And, you know, we get into issues of what defines sin now. Uh, are there different um, things that are sinful, for constitute one, sin for, a, for one person because yeah. they're Jewish, uh, but uh, not another person, et cetera, so on and so forth. Um, but, yeah, that's my understanding that, that Dr. Brown accurately represents uh, the shift in First Fruits of Zion um, that— uh, has really shifted towards a rabbinic, rabbinocentric, what I call, position, adoption of, of some rabbinic halakha, uh, such as uh, preservation of, of Jewish identity uh, and fear of assimilation. And uh, Well, and, and, and I believe that we actually read this quote from Boaz, Michael. We're gonna, I'm going to read it again here in a, in a few minutes. Um, about some of the things that the director of FFOZ said has now said about one law, uh, one law theology, uh, theology that uh, First Fruits of Zion did used to hold to, but now is teaching against. And actually, we're going to also touch on the book that FFOZ has put out uh, called Tent of David. And with this book, they have uh, they have instituted some lecture series that the, that uh, Boaz is teaching. Uh, you know, I'd like to first. First of all, say, I don't want to sound like we're beating up, you know, one specific person. Boaz is a believer and a, and a brother in the Lord, uh, but we do disagree on this one point. So, um, but first, before we get to Boaz, I believe we might have touched on this. We're also, what one direction that we're going to go today is we're going to also talk, uh, now we've talked about uh, what some of the people in the Messianic movement have said about one law theology. We've talked about what Dr. Brown has said about one law theology. And now we're going to move on to what, uh, what N.T. Wright, also someone that we've had uh, on Torah Resource Radio, 
and someone who is, has been very gracious to respond to my emails when I've emailed him. I know that he is extremely busy. If you see the plethora of books that uh, N.T. Wright puts out in a year, I don't know how the guy does it, but he uh, he puts out more literature than, I mean, a lot. He puts out a ton of literature. In fact, when we went to the SBL, I bought three books. Uh, one was a two-volume set on Paul, and the other one was a bunch of his articles uh, all the way from like the beginning of the 80s all the way through to today. Uh, but that was all published within one month of itself. And then also he put out a book on Psalms, his commentary on Psalms. Okay, so before we get to that, N.T. Wright is going to, in some of the stuff that we're going to look at today, in his book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, which is the book that I just referenced, his two-volume work on Paul, which came out last October, November? I think it was November. It's pretty new. It's uh, it's the last in the series, two of his New Testament, The People of God, Jesus and the Victory of God, and uh, Resurrection of the Son of God. That's right. So... Um, now uh, we're going to look at some of the comments that he made. He is responding. Now I shouldn't say he's responding. He's not responding, but he does reference. Uh, is it David Rudolph that he references? Yeah, Doctor David Rudolph. Yeah. Okay. So Doctor David Rudolph just came out with a new website. It's called MessianicGentiles.com, and uh, he I'm on his definition page on this website right now, uh, and this is what he says. This is what David Rudolph says about One Law Theology. I want to read this because uh, N.T. Wright does, does uh, interact with Rudolph a little bit. So Rudolph says about One Law Theology on this new website, he says, A theology that believes faith in Messiah erases all distinction between, between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, side note, that's not true. Anyway, let's keep going. According to One Law Theology, Jews and Gentile believers in Yeshua are both obligated to the full yoke of the Torah and all of its commandments in an identical manner. Many one law adherents attempt to observe Torah without reference to traditional Jewish interpretation and practice in an attempt to be more, quote, biblical in Torah observance. The term, quote, one law is based on passages in the Torah that speak of one law for the native and for the stranger, such as Exodus twelve forty nine. To be completely fair and honest, I would pretty much agree with almost everything that he said there, except for his first statement that uh, it's a theology that erases distinction between Jew and Gentile. Rob, what are your thoughts on that, on his little statement there about one law? Well, the, yeah, I, I don't uh, understand uh, the one Torah as somehow eliminating or erasing uh, that distinction. And I understand that, uh, you know, there are some within the uh, you know, allies of Dr. David Rudolph's that will say that that we're blind to it. We're um, that they call it crypto supersessionism because it's a supersessionism that we don't even know, we, we're blind to. We don't we don't even know that that's what we're doing, and mm. we don't believe we're doing it. But we're going to talk fact, about that's what we're doing. We're going to talk about that later too. After we get done looking at uh, NT Wright stuff, but he and, made a note. He made yeah. a note there. Dr. Rudolph made a note about um, traditional. Or the the full yoke, and and this is. Could you repeat that, Caleb? Just a bit about the full yoke. Yeah, you bet. He says, uh, according to one law theology, Jews and Gentile believers in Yeshua are both obligated to the full yoke of Torah. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, obligated to the full yoke 
of Torah. That's right. And then his next phrase said something about and traditional. All of, and all of its commandments in an identical manner. Many one-law adherents attempt to observe Torah without reference to traditional Jew, Jewish interpretation and practice in an, okay. an attempt yeah, to become so, more biblical. So my suspicion here is that the full yoke of Torah is understood exclusively through the rabbinic lens. That that's my suspicion with okay, with wh- what he means there. Unpack that um, a little bit. What what, in what other implication words, does understanding, that make? Uh, understanding that we uh, the Torah must be fulfilled the way the rabbis say that that's that's the full yoke. Okay. Um, what I don't see here is there's no reference to Yeshua. You know, Yeshua says, "Take my yoke upon you." Rather, there's a ref. Uh, the yoke of the Torah is understood. It seems to me, in the way he's encapsulizing it here, with that it must be with reference to traditional Jewish practice, which is rabbinic. He's not saying rabbinic, but uh, yoke, the full yoke of the Torah is a rabbinic phrase. Mm. Okay. The full yoke of the Torah means what what uh, David Rudolph would mean, like the 613 commandments, you know, and, and then there's a very specific framework for understanding that. My view is that uh, is that disciples of Yeshua have have the right to question those traditions. Absolutely. Well, uh, and, and, and not not uh, uh, just accept rabbinic authority as it is, because if you go. You could go into an Orthodox uh, Jewish synagogue where no, there are no believers in Yeshua, and they'll use this language. The full yoke of the Torah has a very specific meaning. It means the halakha given the, uh, at Mount Sinai, which is the word of God. That's the, the modern Orthodox position is that the halakha of the rabbis is the capital W word of God. See, that's but, from, but, from Nahum Lam, the, who was president of Yeshiva University for years. I mean, that's his, his statement. Um, and so when, when Dr. Rudolph uses this kind of uh, descriptor to talk about those who hold to a one Torah uh, framework, that it, it's not helpful. It's, it, it almost seems polemical uh, rather than actually representing... Uh, what I understand the one Torah perspective to be. Well, in other words, the way it's portrayed uh, on the Messianic Gentiles website would be, oh, I don't want to be affiliated with that. They yeah. want to erase uh, all distinction. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the, it, you know, one, it, one thing that one thing that I uh, think, you know, I haven't really, I don't bring this up, and maybe you can uh, kind of correct me on this, but this is kind of something that I've, you know, I, I just got done talking to, uh, one of the reverse missionaries, or some people call them anti-missionaries. I had a little discussion online with one of these anti-missionaries, and I didn't say this to him because I don't want to make the wrong implication. But, you know, one of the things that I've thought of is, okay, you, you know, if you're Jewish and don't believe in Yeshua uh, as the Messiah, maybe you take the, maybe you hold to the house of Hillel. Maybe you hold to the house of Shammai. Now, these people basically disagreed, you know, on just about everything, or so the so the stories go. And but I think that people are leaving out one uh, road of halakha, 
uh, one teacher that was in the exact same time as those rabbis, and his name is Yeshua, and he came up with halakha as well. And uh, you know, so these the the Orthodox Jews are going to say, well, we hold to uh, to the the oral traditions. Well, Yeshua put his quote-unquote, oral tradition on a much higher plane than just oral tradition, because he said, my words will last, will be forever, which put, Amen. Which Amen. put his, his words on par with Torah. In other words, he was saying, what I'm saying and what I'm teaching is Torah. So I see the apostolic scriptures and the teaching of the Messiah as essentially... In some respects, and this almost dumbs it down, which I don't want to do, but it, on some respects, puts it on the level of you know the oral tradition that the Jews have. Except for no, that's a, Caleb. That's exactly right. There's no problem with that. If we understand our terms clearly, if we look at the apostolic scriptures, are really the first Talmud. Exactly, it's it, the first Talmud. It, it uh, the Mishnah came later. Mm-hmm. The, the Tosefta, yeah. all this, all those other rabbinic things are in a way. Going, wow, we need, you know, the, the followers of Yeshua had oral traditions that now they've encapsulated. And it was and, really quick. It, I mean, and, the oral tradition yeah, became, exactly. became written down, like, almost instantly because people realized this isn't just oral tradition. This isn't, you know, this isn't something that uh, ask your local rabbi kind of a thing. And it's all centered on one person. That's I mean, right. we have four gospel accounts all centered around one person who his teachings and his actions cannot be separated. So it's not like the Mishnah where you just have uh, these short legal statements with an occasional narrative. Um, the The Gospels really encapsulate. You know, Jacob Neusner wrote a little book called uh, Why Are There No Gospels in Talmudic Literature, which is kind of interesting because he, he explores the idea, well, how come the rabbis didn't produce anything like a gospel? Like mm-hmm. where you've got su- uh, sustained stories almost like a biography of different sages, you know, and, and um, I have my own answer to that. It's because there's only, there's only one gospel. There's only one uh, person that is central that is called the rabbi, mm-hmm. and the rest of us are family, you know, uh, under him, uh, whereas the rabbinic movement try, takes that basic structure but multiplies it, multiple rabbis, mm-hmm. multiple discipleship circles. So um, each, and, each rabbi is just as important in, in Jewish thought. In, yeah, within, yeah. The, within the Talmud and the Mishnah, whereas uh, those who follow the Messiah obviously say, no. You get the majority idea two ways yeah. in. Like yeah. if you have, like Rabbi Eliezer, there's a famous story in the rabbinic text of the Rabbi Eliezer who, who says, the Holocaust is according to me, uh, my opinion, and he, he uproots a tree. He does all these miracles. He mm-hmm. makes a river mm-hmm. run up, backwards. yeah. Uh, and they're saying, no, the majority says it's not. The majority says this. And uh, finally... A voice from heaven says the Holocaust is in accordance with Rabbi Eliezer. So he even gets a voice from heaven. And they say it doesn't matter. <laughs> and they say it doesn't matter. The majority rules. The Torah is not in heaven anymore. It's on earth. And then the the story, the punchline is God laughs, says, oh, my children have defeated me. Yeah. So the idea is in that story trains young rabbinic disciples to uh, how to think, how to think about authority, how to question tradition, how to say signs, someone who comes and does signs, you know, doesn't mean anything. And in a way, it's one little building block that helps train rabbinic minds to see the gospel as irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, we need to move on. Uh, We've been talking about this for quite a little while. So we already read David uh, Rudolph's uh, short 
little exposition. Well, but wait, can I make a comment? On, I did. Uh, you sent me a link to that website a week ago, and I was poking through it. And, and so I'd encourage people to actually go and look at it. Uh, they've got quite a number of articles available to download. It's um, uh, an effort by uh, those who would shore up certain you know ma- uh, covenant requirements for Jews. Well, only like seven or ten commandments or so. Uh, not the Ten Commandments at Sinai, mind you, but like the laws of Noah for Gentile, laws, yeah. Messianic Gentiles. Um, so while they definitely are operating on a different framework, I think it's helpful for our listeners to go visit the website and understand where they're coming from. By the way, they've got quite a library of downloadable articles. Um, some of them are, are, are by decent scholars. Um, however, there's so many articles, there's so many authors that are missing. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, okay, so yeah, if I read only these, I'd probably think it the way you do too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's a great resource. I would encourage people to go and download articles there. Just uh, be careful. Them. Just know that... that uh, yeah, I, you know. I would say, you know, because there's uh, most of it's like First Roots of Zion authors and things. I, I would say you don't, you don't have to, you know, those, are, those guys, in my experience, are operating from limited education. But uh, there are some like... Uh, um, oh, who wrote Paul and the Gentiles? Ter- uh, Donaldson is there, Paula Friedrichson. Um, so there, there's some other uh, scholars down there, uh, and they're, they're from reputable journals. And you can uh, download them and read them, and engage, get, get, get into the conversation. That's what I'm saying. Don't be afraid just because it's a, a UMJC-oriented uh, website telling, trying to tell Messianic Gentiles how they should think about themselves and how they should think about their relationship to the Torah and to Judaism proper. Um, don't be afraid of that. Uh, you can go in there and, and engage, get involved in the conversation, um, and take advantage of some of those uh, resources. I don't know if it's legal. I don't know that you can just post uh, you know, articles that are taken from different journals like that online, but uh, apparently they've got permission to do it. Okay. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to start engaging with Dr. N.T. Wright and his comments towards, uh, well, keeping Torah in general, not necessarily a one-law theology, but just keeping Torah in general, what he has to say. And he is an Episcopal, uh, is he a bishop? I believe he is Episcopal. Well, he 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 was. He I was. Mean, he was Church Bishop of England. Of Durham. Bishop I don't of know Durham. If he yeah. might always retain some sort of emeritus bishop. Once I don't a know. He's once not serving as a bishop. Once probably. a once a bishop, always a bishop is the way I understand. I'm serious. I think that's the way it actually goes. Anyway, sure, but I think he's not. What I mean, he's not an active. He doesn't live yeah. in the castle there in Durham anymore. I don't think. Did he live in a castle? Oh. Anyway, okay. Let's yeah. not talk. Let's not talk about that. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. Hey, if you're just joining us, we're talking about One Law Theology. And now we're going to engage with our good friend, Dr. N.T. Wright. I had no clue that he actually lived in a castle. That is pretty darn cool. But first, it's time for our Tech Minute. I hope people enjoy this. If they don't, oh well. One of the things I looked for in the app store was a daily sedur. The problem I ran into was I had a hard time finding something that was free and that also had an English translation. 
For those looking for a Siddur that has English and Hebrew without paying for it, Keter Shlomo by Abraham Hurba is the app for you. This app can be found by typing K-E-T-E-R, Keter, into the search bar in the App Store. This app features side-by-side English and Hebrew text, searchability, bookmarks, and in-app brightness control. This app is not a full Siddur, so it does have its limitations. However, it does include Shacharit for weekdays, Mincha prayer for weekdays, Sefirat HaOmer, blessing after the meals, order of Saturday night, order of Rosh Kodesh, Mitzmorim for various occasions, Hanukkah, Purim, service of Berit Milah, blessing of the new moon, Shema at bedtime, and much more. Reading a Siddur on a smartphone is challenging in and of itself, and while not a full daily Siddur, this app is nice to have for travel, looking things up in the Siddur, or just to have on hand if you forget your Siddur at home. This app is totally free and takes up 9.5 megabytes. Four out of five stars for Keter Shlomo. So, Rob, do you actually have a Siddur on your phone? Yeah, I do. I have one that, you know, and I since my phone's off right now, I... You know, to record, it makes that buzz. Mm-hmm. Besides, it's upstairs anyway. But <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you the name, but it has, it's all Hebrew, the limitations of it, no vowel pointing. <laughs> and, but the advantage of, it has two, it has Nusach Ashkenaz, which is, uh, and, and oh, Nusach nice, yeah. uh, Sephirat. So it has both Ashkenaz uh, Sidur as well as the, uh, the Sephardic Sidur. But like I said, the down... And it's not searchable. It's there's no vocalization, um, and no English translation. And you, um, and there's not not even a bold like where where a new prayer starts, for example. There's uh-huh. not like a no marker. It's just text. Well, so someone had a, a text that they imported and re- and made uh, someone who's who's uh, uh, very fluent with the Siddur would probably it, it's the perfect solution for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to take a quick break from uh, from the Bible apps because I had done two Bible apps previously, and what, I'll get back to those at some point. But uh, yeah, that, that, this one's good. I I actually enjoyed it. It has English in it, and that was hard to find. So if you uh, if you want us to do her, that one's a good one, uh, and you don't have to pay for it. Hopefully, at some point, hopefully at some point. Torah Resource will put out our Sidur in an app form, so you'll be able to download it. But I would like to do that when we actually produce the full Sidur. All right, so let's talk about this. If you do not know already, then uh, Dr. N.T. Wright's book, The uh, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, is a two-volume work. The second volume alone, it's a little bit bigger than the first volume, but the second volume alone is over 1,500 pages. So it is quite the mountain of work to get through. Uh, And Rob and I went through a chapter last week in preparation for this show. And uh, I'm going to actually basically refer to you on this, uh, Rob. Where do we want to start? Should I read a little bit of this? You want me to read a little bit and then we can... Yeah, uh, share a little bit that stuck out to you, uh, worth, you know, worthy of our discussion. Okay. So... Before we before we actually start reading this, I, I do want to say this. And one of the reasons that we're engaging now with N.T. Wright is because N.T. Wright is, uh, whether you agree with him or not, is beyond the point. Dr. N.T. Wright is seen today in scholarly circles as one of the leading scholars on Paul and Paul's writings. Um, so it's important to look at these kind of authors and these kind of uh, people to see what they're saying 
about uh, the Torah. We might disagree with him, which we do, especially on this issue. We disagree with Dr. Wright on, on many issues, as a matter of fact. But uh, that doesn't mean that we should gloss over what he says and what he, he has written, especially on this topic, but on, on other topics as well, especially when it comes to Paul. Okay, I'm going to read this quote. This is from his book, uh, second volume of Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Quote, it would appear not only that Paul was advising Gentile Christians in Corinth to eat non-kosher food, but he, that he was un, that he was happy to do so himself, and that he was happy to see other Jewish Christians following this pattern. And at this point, some today might say, as some of his contemporaries certainly did, that he had stopped being a, quote, Jew altogether. He had abandoned the most basic markers of Jewish identity. Rob, talk about That's, that. I'm glad you read that uh, extended passage there. Uh, this is just uh, one of the places that really anchors for us uh, Dr. Wright's position with respect to the relevance of Torah. Clearly, Torah means something different for N.T. Wright in terms of its applicability today to Christianity, let well, alone Judaism. Uh, N.T. Wright doesn't really concern himself in his writings about contemporary Judaism. I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's important to you know to see those distinctions. We need to. We always should define terms. It doesn't matter what we're talking about with people. We should always define terms. Torah is one of them with Doctor N.T. Wright because in his book on uh, Psalms, he affirms. And if you listen to my interview with Doctor N.T. Wright that we did back in December. Then you heard me ask him about his, this quote from his book in, uh, on the Psalms. He says that uh, the Torah is good for believers and that we should be keeping Torah. Um, essentially, that's what he says. That's I remember in that not word Caleb, word. you asked him, and he's like, oh, I knew someone was going to ask me about that. <laughs> that's right. And, and so it's not – and I'm sure that he would hold to that. And the way that he answered that was kind of the – you know, basically affirming what I'm saying, that Dr. Wright believes that Torah had some ethnic – uh, markers in it. And when uh, Jesus came, or Yeshua, as we would say, and broke down that wall, that those ethnic things went away from the Torah. Things like keeping the Sabbath. Well, and and uh, I think he would even say that the Sabbath was moved to Sunday. It wasn't, nece- it wasn't necessarily abolished, but that uh, something changed there with the Sabbath. The kosher laws were done away with. Uh, things like this, you know, the, the festivals, and that all of a sudden the church gained these things called the sacraments, and uh, which the Church of England re- uh, very much believes in. And right. So, and so right. he believes uh, in the in what we would consider what we would call the sacraments. I think he would call them the sacraments just as well. Uh, anyway, keep going. I find it interesting that he says that Paul uh, ate non kosher food. Right. Yeah. This is a, he says it would appear not only Paul was advising Gentile Christians to eat non kosher food, uh, but that he was happy to do so himself and happy to see other quote Jewish Christians following this pattern. I just I, that is absolutely outlandish uh and it for him to be able to say that without you know without a twitch (laughs) you know yeah um is well really telling to how immersed his worldview is in the torah being done away and and now he remember at the very end of that statement he says he he had abandoned the most basic markers of jewish identity which of course he would say are kashrut or you know um Keeping uh, kosher. Clean and unclean. And that's what he's talking about here. It's like non-kosher food. Now, of course, by using the word kosher, we're importing later rabbinic definition. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a difference between 
forbidden, you know, permitted and forbidden foods mm. on one hand, and then there's the purity, the the ritual purity, uh, which are and those are two different kind of maps regarding to holiness that uh, uh, overlap one another in different situations. Well, you know, one uh, thing one thing that I I noticed about this, and I want to say this right now, and then I'll let you get back to your point. One reason that one thing that I really noticed about his statements here is that, it, for, in my opinion, and this goes along with what you're saying, Rob, is that he was coming to this not with an open mind of what is Paul saying. From a Jewish context, what is Paul saying? But Dr. Wright came to uh, these texts with the mindset, Torah is done away with. Now let's see what Paul says about Torah being done away with. Right, yeah. And so, uh, this and this gets back to slightly, although in this quote he doesn't talk about works of the law, what we've discussed uh, in prior interviews and uh, conversations with respect to the 4QMMT, you know, Dr. Marty Abeg has a slightly different angle on what MMT or what the works of the law in Paul's letters in Romans and Galatians means. Um, N.T. Wright sees the works of the law as eating, you know, what the Torah permits and not eating what the Torah prohibits. Um, so uh, N.T. Wright sees that as a work of the law that has been done away. Mm. Um, and so another would be Sabbath. For example, there's a footnote uh, in the same uh, to that same part of the book where footnote 59 uh, Wright says, quote, Paul's reference to Pentecost in 1 Corinthians 16 uh, proves little. In other words, what he's saying is that you can't l- look at Paul's uh, reference to Pentecost in 1 Corinthians 16 and say, see, Paul's observing. And he goes on to say this, and I, it's, he says this with a straight face, which is very telling. He says, a modern atheist might well say, quote, I'll see you after Easter, with no implication that they believed in Jesus' resurrection or that they would be in church to celebrate it. Uh, the fact that he can say these things, in other words, so what the implication here is, what he's saying, what N.T. Wright is saying is that when Paul says, uh, refers to Pentecost um, in 1 Corinthians 16, um, he's just, it, might, it could be just like an atheist, you know, who's saying, oh, it's just a, a marker, you know, it has no religious significance. When the pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh is is specifically anchored oh, to, the, to yeah. Shavuot, you know, the Pentecost event post, you know, 50 days after or more, you know, or more or less after the resurrection of Yeshua, um, that that would not have any significance to Paul uh, is, is just uh, flabbergasting to me that N.T. Wright would be so fixed in his uh, Anglican worldview that uh, his historian hat or his historian radar would not just be screaming at him right there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, should we read another one of these quotes? You know, I got to say, reading this chapter out of – now, I bought these books in November. I haven't actually gotten around to, to reading them yet because, quite frankly, it's a daunting task to do so. There's there's so much to read. You know, I'm it's like committing to 2,500 pages to read this this uh, book on Paul by by uh, by Wright. So I haven't read the whole thing. This is actually the first part of the the book that I picked up to read. And uh, I got to say it was it was a little bit disheartening. I I kind of stopped and after I read the chapter and thought to myself, "Oy vey, is this is this what the whole book's going to be like?" And of course it's not because, you know, I don't think it will be because Dr. Wright is is such a, a good scholar, but definitely this was a little bit well, disconcerting. Well, there's two there's two scholars that he's if you read this section and look at his footnotes, two scholars that are really uh that he's taken to task. One is Dr. David Rudolph uh, 
and the other is Dr. Mark Nanos, uh, mm-hmm. both who are trying to, in their works, even if you know I don't agree with everything they've written, what they're trying to do is loosen the grip that traditional Christian portraits of Paul, such as N.T. Wright has, trying to loosen the grip and saying, hey, t- Paul was Torah observant. That's, that is the, the angle that Dr. Rudolph and Dr. Nanos are trying to make room for. Now, I don't agree where they go with it after that, but I certainly uh, think that uh, it's well established that Paul was a Torah observant Jew, uh, that it's just our faith, in my view, uh, demands that that be the case. And I don't see any way to get around it. And what N.T. Wright is trying to do, he's engaging with the works of Dr. Rudolph, Dr. Nows, and trying to uh, make them sound silly. Now, okay, once again, I, I, I have to state this once again. I didn't read the, the, the book uh, up until this point. So, you know, maybe I'm not doing Dr. Wright justice. But one thing that I re- really do think is that Dr. Wright, in, in, especially in this chapter, is not taking into consideration anything else except for Paul. He's not taking into consideration the words of Yeshua. He's not taking into consideration the Torah or the Tanakh uh, leading up to and, and essentially the foundation of what Paul was preaching. So Paul's standing on the Torah and the prophets in order to proclaim Yeshua as the Messiah. And then obviously we know that, that uh, Paul was well aware of Yeshua's teachings and uh, Yeshua in general. He even quotes Yeshua and whatnot. So he's sta- but he's standing on the Torah, he's standing on the prophets, and he's and he's upholding the teaching of this of this Messiah figure now that he ha- that he believes is the Messiah, rightly so, uh, named Yeshua. And it seems to me that what Wright has done is he's taken all of that away, and he's saying, let's just look at Paul and the work that Paul did, and let's not take any other outside influence. Let's not take the Torah. Let's not take any of that and implant it into what what uh, Paul is saying. And the reason I think that is because. Uh, you have some significant theological problems if that is the view that you're going to take. And if you're going to take the view that Paul all of a sudden decided the Torah wasn't around anymore, then you have even bigger significant problems. Not the least to say that uh, if that is what Paul was teaching, if Paul decided, hey, Torah doesn't matter anymore and I can eat unkosher food, then he's becoming a hypocrite in and of himself. And he's going against other places and other things that he's said, uh, other scripture that we hold as scripture now, other writings that he made to other people. Um, And he's becoming kind of this hypocrite in his own theology. Let's talk about that for a few seconds. I'm going to move now to the idea that uh, the, the Torah is done away with from a Christian standpoint, and we'll tie it into uh, what Dr. Wright said and, and what some of the other people have said. Basically, the way, and Rob, stop me at any time if you want to make comments or if you uh, have anything to say about this. Okay, okay, yeah, I'm listening. Keep going. So basically, the way that I see it is this. The first thing that was given as revelation to man from God in terms of this is the way you should live and, and whatnot, uh, you know, we can debate when when specific parts of Scripture as Job and things were written. But the Torah is the first thing that God wrote to man, or gave to man. 
Uh, he gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it was the Torah. The first five books of the Bible were then written. It, you know, we can also debate whether or not it was all given to him on Mount Sinai or whether or not he wrote the rest of the Torah throughout the wanderings in the desert. Okay, fair enough. Whatever the point is, is that the Torah was the first thing given. And from that, we have these built, everything is built on top of it. So the Torah is our foundation. And within the Torah, you have these specific key phrases, things like forever. The Sabbath is a sign forever, as Exodus says. And then you have things like throughout all your generations. And these are terms that are used to, that deal with time. Forever is a time binding uh, uh, statement, as is throughout all your generations. So from the very first thing that we have from God, we have these statements. Now, when the prophets and the rest of the Tanakh, or what the Christians might call the Old Testament, are built um, upon that, they have to line up and agree with the Torah. The Torah becomes the measuring stick. So as soon as if someone were to say, well, no, that's not true, or we're going to change something in the Torah, everybody says, no, 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 you can't do that. The Torah is the measuring stick. So everything gets lined up to the Torah. Now, fast forward to the apostolic scriptures or what is called the New Testament. The same still applies. You cannot have someone come in and say, I'm the Messiah and you have to listen to me and I'm telling you that the Torah is wrong. When it says forever, when it says throughout all your generations, that's not actually true. If that is what Yeshua said, and that's actually what he meant, then he is a false Messiah. Now, I, Well, A, it would have been recorded, right? Absolutely. The disciples would have faithfully recorded the words of their teacher, A, so we would have it actually that explicit. Well, and, well okay, well, hang on just a sec. And but, B, he would... You're like you're saying it would have been a false. Uh, uh, well, some people are going to say some. Some people are going to say, well, well, Yeshua did say that. You know, Mark seven says that uh, that he made all foods clean. You know, the, the, we we can get into the arguments. They're going to say, oh, well, Paul said, you know, that the uh, you know circumcision is nothing. You know, all these kind of little arguments of these little snippets that people are taking out. But just at the very core, let's talk. You know about. Yeshua is the Messiah. If he came and he and he, you know, if his intention was to say the kosher law is no longer uh, applicable today, and therefore Yeshua made all foods clean, then at its very root level, he would not be Messiah. And this is one reason. One of the things that the Christians don't take into account is that this is one of the reasons that we don't believe that Joseph Smith is a true prophet because he said things that went against the Bible. He tried to change things that were in the apostolic scriptures and change things that were in the, the Torah. And because of that, we know that Joseph Smith is not a prophet. Yet, at the same time, Christians try to take that same kind of idea and apply it to Paul and Jesus and say, oh, well, they changed that. They can't change it. If they tried to change it, then they weren't who's, who they said they were. Okay, so first, let's, let's also bring into the conversation the, you know, a lot of Messianics use this as the smoking gun, which is Matthew 5.17 and following where he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. And truly I say unto you until heaven and earth passes away. And then he says, whoever teaches, uh, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others, so on and so forth. So obviously we have a direct statement from Yeshua saying that the Torah is specifically in act until heaven and earth passes away and until all is accomplished. That has not happened yet. So from Yeshua's own words, we know that the Torah is still in act. So, then, let's get to Paul. 
if Paul, and this is where I'm bringing, you know, this is the problem that I have with N.T. Wright's uh, saying that Paul no longer kept kosher and whatnot, is that if Paul was speaking against not only the Torah and not only the Tanakh, but was also speaking against the very person that he was proclaiming to be the Messiah, in that that Torah was done away with and therefore was not keeping kosher food, then Paul would have to be rejected as a false teacher and a false prophet. Since we, since so many people think that, then let's look at Second Timothy three sixteen. Okay, Second Timothy three sixteen. Uh, Paul, this is the letter from Paul to Timothy, and what does he say? He says. Let me get to it here. Sorry. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. That's important. And for correction, for training in righteousness. So Paul tells Timothy that, hey, all scripture is inspired and and we can use it to reproof one, one another. Well, what scripture was he talking about? The, the New Testament was not, uh, you know, brought together and canonized by that point. He's talking about the Tanakh. He's talking about Torah. So if that's the case, then how am I now, today, supposed to use a passage like Leviticus 9 and the kosher laws or uh, you know other passages and apply them to believers for reproof? To say that, to say that Paul was eating non-kosher food and that he did away with it, that he was taking the Torah out of the equation would make him first a false teacher. But beyond that, it would make him a hypocrite because in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says to the contrary. So then what is the conclusion? One of three things is going on here. A, Yeshua spoke against the Torah and is not the Messiah. I don't believe that. Or scenario two, B, Paul spoke against Yeshua Yeshua upheld the Torah, but Paul spoke against Yeshua's teaching that the Torah was still in act, and therefore Paul should not be accepted. I also don't accept that. Or the third scenario, the one that I do accept, is that the Christian church has misinterpreted the words of Paul and has misinterpreted the words of Yeshua, and that Yeshua is the true Messiah, and that Paul agreed fully with him and with the Torah. Your thoughts on that, Rob? Oh, yeah, I'm on board uh, with your viewpoint as well, Caleb. And, you know, part of this is... we. We like to think, it's easy for us humans to think in generalizations. You know, sometimes we need to, to function in the world, we need to generalize. Um, but we need to be careful when, we, when we're going to get uh, into a serious conversation, meaning we're going to take, take Scripture very seriously, and we're talking about things of, of you know, serious gravity, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. things that are very important for how we view the world and how we behave and what we teach our children, so on and so forth is that we have to think about these categories again, Judaism and Christianity. Some would probably say, yeah, Paul converted from Judaism to Christianity. I think there's a lot of people in America, in probably evangelical streams, that if you said, so did Paul convert from Judaism to Christianity? They say, yeah. They actually envision some sort of conversion. They see Judaism as where Paul came from, and they see Christianity as to his new uh, religion. Mm. And uh, when you start with that framework, you're going to, it's, there's no way to, to uh, get beyond uh, and get deeper into the, the text mm-hmm. uh, because you're stuck. And I think that's kind of the framework that N.T. Wright is using, at least 
in this particular area. And again, I've benefited from Dr. Wright's labors in absolutely um, his commentaries uh, have so many insightful and historical, uh, historically accurate perspectives on so many fronts uh, that they are valuable for that. And uh, but you know we need to be aware that um, just as you know what I teach, you know, if I have a student, I'll say, you know, uh, study this out for yourself. I'll do my best to share my perspectives, but there's no substitute. You know, I can't let somebody else do all my thinking for me. Mm-hmm. And and we're all called to that in our discipleship to Yeshua. We're called to to learn from one another, and but to be accountable. As I'm accountable, ultimately, uh, I'm the one that has to stand up before. Uh, Yeshua, you know, and, and so with each, each, uh, you, Caleb, and each one of our listeners, the same situation. So we need to take the, the wonderful minds that uh, Hashem has given us and these resources, particularly in the Western world. We have internet, we have we, the books are open, uh, metaphorically speaking. I mean, we have it, it's really up to us. How much history do we want to dive into? How much language do we want to learn? Um, it's all there and readily available for relatively little financial well, cost and not only, but, but great great personal sacrifice though to pursue and and gain competency in these topics requires a uh, a devotional you know level almost a zeal for study um and, and, and that if we can conduct our that and conduct our conversations in with the Torah of Messiah as our anchoring then we're going to benefit from each other that's right and you know what that honestly we're in a time right now where I think people take for granted the ability to study and the ability to have these discussions and arguments. I was reading a book last night that looked at one of the martyrs uh, in the 1500s in 1533, and uh, Thomas More put him to death uh, because he didn't believe in transubstantiation, that is, that Christ or the Messiah uh, was actually physically present within the uh, communion bread and the wine. And so... He was put to death just because he said, no, Christ isn't physically present in the sacrament of of, uh, the Eucharist. So how much, I mean, how how free are we today to be able to have these? Absolutely. That's a great point, Killer. I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, we're not, we don't even have to talk about the questions about Christianity and Judaism and Torah. All those things are really, you know. We are we're in a luxury now to really That's investigate right. these things, uh, whereas someone in that situation with such an intensity of inquisition and um, state power that is abusing the word of God to where it's that simple, yes or no on this, and and your life is is on the line. And and we know that in the third world or in, in some um, Islamic countries, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord are it can find themselves in very similar. Um, That's right. Non-negotiable uh, situations where their life is immediately at, on the line. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, so basically, back to I want to just say this one last thing about you know I I track the theology that I have for one law theology from well or for just the Torah being uh, applicable today from the Torah to now. Um, and the last thing I want to say on that is this. Basically, my whole point in bringing all that up is is that. If you believe that the Torah is no longer applicable today, then essentially you have nothing to stand on to say 
that other theologies, such as uh, the, the Book of Mormon or uh, that Joseph Smith is a prophet, you have no, no foundation to stand on to say that those things aren't true. Because if people can come and change the words of Scripture to whatever they want, then, uh, then anybody can do that, like Joseph Smith. And why wouldn't you take someone like Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon as truth if you believe that people can come in and change the eternal word of God from what it, what it was to what you think it is today? It just doesn't make any sense. We have not gotten to a significant amount of the core uh, issues that I want to bring up, uh, and we're running out of time. So we're going to save these. We're going to bring this into next week. We're going to continue to talk about this subject. Next week, I want to talk about identity. I want to talk about this idea that one law theology breaks down these identity markers between Jew and Gentile, that it all becomes one melting pot, and that uh, this is, quote-unquote, dangerous for people to do, and also the idea that in so doing, that brings us into a uh, supersessionist understanding of uh, who we are as Jews and Gentiles in the body of the Messiah. Any parting words before we go, Rob? No, no, I'm just, I'm grateful that we have this opportunity, you know, using the internet to have these conversations and to get feedback from our listeners, uh, which we are grateful for. So if you've ever thought about Sending us a, send us your thoughts, but you've got sidetracked or you've kind of talked yourself out of out of it. Please, uh, there are no questions or comments too small or unworthy of That's of right. sharing with us. We value, we believe in the, the multi-membered body of Messiah, and um, we value your thoughts and um, want to make sure that we're uh, keeping on track and and able to speak to those things and we can only do that when people take the time to send us a note that's right all right well next week we're going to continue this conversation it's going to be the fourth week that we talk about one law theology and uh as rob said we hope that you uh send us your questions or your comments and uh, we will take them into consideration and probably read them on air and so until next time uh we will be talking about one law theology and hoping that this conversation glorifies our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Mm-hmm.